If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to episode number 59 of the Great Writer Share podcast, where every week we hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join us on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. Today's date is Monday the 19th of October and we'll dive straight in to my personal update. So in fiction news, there's been a lot going on. Um, today, as of the day of recording, um, marks the release of my anthology, The Other Side, a horror anthology, uh, which has been very, very much prevalent in my mind for the past few months. It's all gone very quick. I'm incredibly happy with how it's all turned out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an experience in running an anthology, in getting the submissions in, reading through the submissions, trying to find sort of smooth processes, because this is something that I definitely want to do going forward, because the, the biggest thing that's come from just putting the anthology together is the networking with people. It's the meeting new voices. I have... 10 authors within the anthology um, as well as myself who we're, we've all been working together to get the book edited um, it's been fantastic just sort of getting to know a little bit of their journey to get a chance to to raise their voices and promote their work and it, the whole thing's just been for me the whole thing's just been a positive through and through and uh, yeah I'm, I'm really really proud of what we came out of at the end I'm already in the process of looking into the the next anthology whatever whatever that'll be I may or may not have literally just bought a new cover um but yeah, so the, the anthology is out. That's that's really exciting. Um, I'm I put that out specifically. I really wanted to get this out in time for Halloween because I think there's a lot of content there that would please any kind of reader. Really, you don't even have to be a just a horror reader. You can be anyone that wants something with a bit of a dark spin for for Halloween. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's out. So I'll put a link for where you can get that in the show notes, or you can just head over to the Devil's Rock Publishing website and click on the tab at the top and get your copy there. Um, and I'll probably report back in a few weeks to let you know how it's gone in terms of sales and stuff. But mostly for me, this is just getting work out and, as I say, raising other people's voices. When Winter Comes is also ticking along very, very nicely. When Winter Comes Episode 5 came out the 7th of October, and I'm currently chipping away at Episode 6, which is going to come out in the middle of November. Um, so it's all narrowing down to the finish. This is going to be the last book in the serial, uh, I'm 100% sure. I'm getting a new cover together for the box set collected edition that should be through next month. So it's all coming together. All those pieces are sort of wrapping up and that's where crunch time will really come in terms of what the product does, I believe, because the collected version. So, so far with episodes one to six, I've only released those as eBooks because um, for, for people that don't know, if you put up a paperback on the KDP system, 
you cannot really ever take down the paperback. Whereas if you've put up an ebook, it's very easy to recall that and just clear that off your page. And although obviously there's a lot of reviews attached to the current books and everything else, I'm not 100% sure yet I want those to stick because I'm trying to think where I go next. But the collected version is going to be in paperback. It's going to be in hardback. I'm looking at getting the audiobook done. I'm really sort of bringing together this this comprehensive product that's going to be, um, it's looking at about 130,000 words in total for this story, which I'm 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 loving the story. <laughs> like it's been a while since I've really stuck into a book that spoke to me from sort of like a, a, a much longer standpoint. Um, and this will be the first ever solo large project project I've written um, with just just my name attached, which is going to be a very very different perspective for me as the guy that tends to collaborate with a lot of people. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, that's that's currently what I'm chipping away on in terms of fiction. In terms of nonfiction, I'm doing a lot of groundwork at the minute for building some nonfiction routes. So long-term listeners of this show know that I released a book on collaboration for authors this year. Uh, They'll know that I'm currently chipping away at a productivity book for not just authors, but creatives in general. Um, But I am also currently building a whole platform around nonfiction and finding a way to support authors because I believe there's a lot of value that I can give to authors and there's a lot that I want to give back to the community that has sort of been so kind to me. So I'll keep you posted of all that and that'll be coming probably in the next couple of months. Um, But it's very exciting. There's a lot going there. And I did give a little tease in uh, this week's Next Level Authors podcast as well. So feel free to check that out. Um, And I will also add, so this will be my third, (laughs) Jesus Christ, my third book release of this month, which was the marketing side of the Nine Things Career Authors Don't Do series with Jay Thorne. So me and Jay worked together on getting a book all about uh, the nine biggest things within the marketing sphere that I felt I could contribute to the author community, things that I've learned about from my own experience working in working marketing for over half a decade. Um, and yeah, I'm really, really proud of what we put together. And it's it's quite a short read. It's 10,000 words, but there's some key valuable lessons, I think, that you can really pick up a lot from. So just find that series on Amazon. Um, there is a universal link that I'll pop into the show notes. But yeah, Nine Things Career Authors Don't Do, Marketing with Daniel Wilcox and Jay Thorne. So check that out. And just one final note, anyone who's looking into getting involved in this year's NaNoWriMo 2020, which kicks off at the beginning of November and runs throughout the entirety of November, I am running a NaNoWriMo bootcamp, which is essentially a live sprint. Join me twice a week for an hour and a half. Um, I've got different times you can get involved in. And essentially, the whole point of this is to uh, act as an accountability partner, to give you a time slot to be writing in the morning or the evenings, whichever suits best for you guys, and just to hold your hand and make sure that you're you're getting getting the words in, getting it done, and hopefully finishing NaNoWriMo, because obviously that's the challenge is to write the 50,000 words within the 30-day period. It's difficult. It's tough. I've been there. Um, I've been a winner. I've been a loser. Um in, in general as well. <laughs> but uh, for anyone who wants to check out that out uh, and basically get some extra support, join a community of a growing, a very fast growing community of authors jumping in, getting involved in live Zoom sprints with myself, then head on over to www.danielwilcox.com forward slash bootcamp. And I will pop a link for that in the show notes as well. But one more time, that's www.danielwilcox.com slash bootcamp. Our question of the week this week was nice and simple, but I think it's quite a deep one. Uh, why your genre? And yeah, we did get um, a slew of responses on that. So the wonderful Holly Line co-host, was up Holly, says, uh, I didn't consciously choose my genre. I grew up on horror and dark fiction, so I guess it's kind of in my blood. It was only when I began really trying to sell it that I had to think about how to define it. 
I do want to be more conscious of genre as I move through my author career, however, but I'll always write dark fiction. Totally feel that. That's definitely been my experience in everything I've tried up to this point. Uh, Laura Kay, who is a brand new patron, welcome Laura to the community, says, I've always been like, I don't have a genre, you can't tame me. Don't we all start like that? Uh, but recently I've realized that I actually do have a genre. Everything I write has a fantasy sort of theme running through it, especially now I'm older and some of the angst has left my system. Yanni Jade says, I guess I've always been drawn to mythology and fantasy, so to then write about it was something I felt I could do, and I wanted to write a story I would have read or watched if, I, if it were a series or movie. I love the idea of a hidden world beyond the veil, being just out of reach of reality or hidden in plain sight. Faye Tresk, I love when the co-hosts get involved. Sup guys? Uh, I chose and love dark fantasy because it's closer to what we have to deal with every day. Life isn't perfect. We have challenges and obstacles to navigate. We lo lose people and we have to figure out how to stand up for what we believe is right. We aren't guaranteed a happy ending and can even help someone get through an especially dark time. Love that. That's the whole point of fiction for me. Andy Conduit Turner with my uh, shortest and one of my favourite responses. Always was a spooky kid. That's true. If you ever meet Andy, say hi. I believe, without teasing too much, or I might get this wrong, but I think Andy will be coming on the show in the next few weeks. So looking forward to that. Uh, do a couple more. Meg Jolly says, uh, epic fantasy, the genre where quite literally anything is possible. Jasmine Plate says, as a pagan and a kitchen witch, I've always felt there was more to the world than we suspect. It fascinates me to no end. Also, if you can make shit up, that always seems easier than doing the research to put stories in the, quote, real world. I, I definitely agree with that a lot. I, uh, it's one of the reasons I tend to look towards sort of a fantastical element of horror is that it it does require a little bit less research um, and you can have a bit more fun with sort of the, the broken reality of whatever you create. Final one uh, from Ritu who says, uh, I kind of made my own genre up, chickpea curry lit. Chicklet with an Indian twist because I write best when it's something I can relate to. And Ritu goes a lot into that in one of the previous episodes. Um, I think go back five or six episodes, Ritu was on the show and she speaks all about that. So if that interests you, then definitely go back and check that episode out. So today's guest is V.S. Holmes, an award-winning author and someone who advocates for queer and disabled representation. And that's a topic that we dive into quite heavily because I definitely have my own questions when it comes to writing characters that I am generally unfamiliar with. Um, we talk about their awards and life as a contract archaeologist and author. We go a little bit into tiny homes and we talk a lot about collaborative universities and building an imprint as they have built an, uh, an imprint with Amphibian Press and how that has all kind of worked in terms of promoting their work and working with other authors there. So stick around and that will come up very, very shortly. Before we get into the interview, I want to remind you all about Patreon, where for as little as $1 a month, you can get involved in our behind the scenes community. You can get early access to all episodes. You can ask questions. You can get involved in our monthly giveaway, which this month is Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. Um, we have a monthly Patreon Q&A, which me and uh, the guys recorded last night, which is going to be a one and a half hour Q&A just of all things that people have asked, anything they wanted to know. So you can jump over and get that. And I also did mention this briefly earlier, but I want to give a massive welcome to Laura Kay for joining the Great Writer Share uh, Patreon community. Um, so thank you. Your, your support keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels turning and keeps the show going. So if you fancy getting access to a load of extra good stuff, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Great Writer Share. But now, without any further ado, we'll dive into the interview with the one and only V.S. Holmes. V.S. Holmes is an international best-selling author. They created the Reforged series and the Nell Bentley books. Smoke and Rain, the first book in their fantasy quartet, won New Apple Literary's Excellence in Independent Publishing Award in 2015 and a Literary Titan Gold in 2020. 
In addition, they have published short fiction in several anthologies. When not writing, they work as a con- uh, contract archaeologist rather than northeastern US. They live in a tiny house with their spouse, a fellow archaeologist, their not-so-tiny dog, and own too many books for such a small abode. As a disabled and queer human, they work as an advocate and educator for representation in SFF worlds. V, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm, I'm very excited to have you. There's a lot of uh, stuff in your intro that's quite juicy that I want to I <laughs> jump into, but um, I'm going to start a little bit and go a bit more into depth with something that we briefly touched on before we started recording, which was, tell us about this tiny house, because that, that has piqued my interest, because there was, <laughs> what documentary was it? There was something on Netflix where they, they showed these tiny houses, and they seemed like such a good practical idea. So, so how did you get involved in one? Well, I, I've always been sort of a project person. Um, I, I like having many projects, uh, usually too many projects. And um, when I first started in, in archaeology, I was drawn to the nomadic lifestyle of contract archaeology. And I thought, well, a, you know, a smaller house or like an RV or something like that would be a really neat solution to living in the no-tell motels that we usually have to stay in. And... I, you know, as I was researching that, my dad, who built way back in the 70s when he was doing a lot of hitchhiking and stuff, he he built a little camper on the back of his truck. And so I was thinking about that idea and about the uh, Romani Vardos, you know, with like the curved roof wagons. And I just kind of developed this idea. And of course, many other people were starting to to do this movement. And that, that was back in about 2014. Um, so that was when it first got really popular and it just it sort of grew legs on, on its own. <laughs> nice. And, uh, I mean, there is, like you say, something nice about that idea of a, a nomadic lifestyle. How does that, how does that play into your writing or the, the way that you write? Are you someone that has to sit in a particular place? Are you someone that has to sort of roam around when you're, when you are trying to write and get your stuff done? I, I don't have to sit in a particular place. I, I do need fewer distractions um <laughs> I, I i'm quite an introvert so i i like to have my my quiet and my my music and fewer distractions as as possible um but i can really write almost anywhere which is good because mm. you know when when we're traveling all all over it's like whatever hotel room whatever cafe back when we could go to cafes you know that i, I can really pick up wherever i want it's really about creating my own little tiny atmosphere and that was something that that's part of what what the tiny house was about too was kind of being a turtle and knowing how to take my home with me um, because when you are on the road it's very easy to get homesick because there's there's nothing that's really a constant so yeah i can, i can totally understand that what does a what does life look like for a contract archaeologist can you explain a little bit of what that means just in layman's terms um it, the the culture is very much um kind of like a modern day cowboy Nice. We're we're traveling from town to town, and um, you know we we go in before a a project that's um, that that requires federal funding. So we'll go in for pipelines, power lines, uh, road work to make sure that whatever the project is isn't going to impact whatever cultural um, remains are are there, whether it's human remains or if it's artifacts. So we go through first, and um, you know we'll we'll end up in really wild. Uh, towns, really wild areas. Um, and it's, it's been really fun to sort of explore the, the various cultures and uh, subcultures of, of New England. 
Yeah, something I think we'll uh, we'll dig into a little bit more later. But can you uh, just grace my listeners with a little bit of an intro about um, how you got into writing and where your writing journey started from? I think I've always been a storyteller. I grew up with you know both my parents reading me a lot of stories. My mom is very literary, and my dad had a lot of wild stories, like I mentioned before, with like hitchhiking and um, his time in the service. And I really liked the the backgrounds and how, how you can see how people became the people they are and just the, the why of, of the story. So when I was very little, I, I was writing stories that probably weren't very good. <laughs> um, and it, it took me until my teen years to really decide, oh, this is something I might want to pursue. And um, I didn't start doing it professionally until after I was out of college. And what was the first, what was the first real story where you thought, okay, maybe there's, there's something I've, I've put in here that has some kind of legs, could potentially do something? That was actually Smoke and Rain, uh, my, nice. my first book. Uh, I, I definitely wrote and finished other stories before that, um, but, you know, I, I trunk them and I, I did trunk Smoke and Rain a few times, but I just kept going back to it. And what, it's, what, it's, it's what does trunk mean? Sorry, does trunk, does trunk okay. just throw away? Just throw it in the trunk. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Nice. So Smoke and Rain was your first real, real project that you, you dived into. And and not only did it win an award in 2015, um, but it's also got one pretty recently. So it's got to feel quite quite validating to know that a work that you've written that because I, I, I feel like you get a lot of people who seem to get there or get some real success, some real um, accolades in a particular work. But then it tends to stay within that that time era. It tends to be a lot of people will get the awards within, you know, two years of each other but to have you know two awards within five years how did how did that come about and, and how are you feeling after that success um well the the first award the the new apple award um you know i i submitted it for and i had kind of forgotten that i'd done that and it was an utter surprise when i got the email which was a couple days after it was supposed to be announced i guess there had been sort of like a tie situation and i you know you, you can write a story and have friends and family think it's great and and that's fine um but you you always have that thing in the back of your mind you're like oh, oh it was actually that good <laughs> and then um you know then it got this award and then more recently um was sort of the, the same thing i didn't realize that they that um they they had an award and so it just happened to be their their favorite book of the month and that was really wonderful because it was also a very different audience um and reading especially books that are more speculative you know fantasy and sci-fi isn't for everyone and it's nice to see that not only is it still popular but it's also speaking to sort of a newer sci-fi fantasy audience um, which was was a little bit more specific with with the newer award what would you say is about the book that has given it that those that sort of push to keep on giving to the reader is there anything that you can kind of think of that would be you know the call yeah i i definitely think that while there is, you know, like the massive scope battles that, that a lot of fantasy has, um, I go more into the political stuff behind it and what's going on with the people and why that war is happening. And it's long lasting effects, both, you know, psychological and sort of on the, the grander scale politically. And I think that's something that a lot of people are focusing more on now, um, as we're seeing a lot of political turmoil and specifically in the United States, but also sort of globally. And delving into that, I think, is a lot more interesting for some people now. Mm. Where did you get the 
the, the understanding to be able to write these politically complex scenes and, and battles and everything. Because um, one would assume that from your experience with an archaeology, that might not necessarily be something that you're familiar with. So how, how did you find that you approached the craft of writing that and, and put it in such a way that it's, it's won these awards? Well, I, so my, my background is actually in biology, but I happened to be taking a military history course when I was in university. And I learned a lot about that. It was specifically modern United States military history. Um, so I, I learned through that, but it was also encountering a lot of the political things with archaeology that, that we deal with, because we are the sort of in-between between federal projects and Native Americans. There's a lot of political stuff going on there. And we also have, have to study it and study how these people were impacted um, you know, regardless of which people we actually study, um, see how they've been impacted and how cultures have changed over time. And a lot of that is is very political and very murky. And um, I was actually just talking to a historian recently, and I, I said that historians focus on what people say happened and archaeologists sort of focus on what might have actually happened. <laughs> and sort of trying to figure out what the, what the real story is there. And so I think that there's a lot of um, political undercurrents in archaeology that has helped me sort of understand how people work and or don't work together. <laughs> Absolutely. One uh, one thing that I love trying to get to the root of with, um, with with guests that come on as well, because you mentioned that when you were when you're writing this book, obviously there was something in you that said, you know, this has this has power to to go and potentially do something. Obviously, like when when you first put your, your fingers to the keyboard on any project, there's never a guarantee that something's going to happen, particularly early on. And you said that you had, you know, friends and family that gave you some kind of validation. Um, but what was it within yourself that thought this is this is the project? This is this is one I'm going to roll ahead and sort of make meaty and flesh and, and make it come alive. That's that's tough. I think part of it was whenever I got sort of in a, in a low point with the project, uh, there was kind of a stubbornness and, uh, you know, I've, I've invested so much time, so I probably should see this through. <laughs> um, <laughs> so th- that's definitely, definitely part of it. But I think wanting to tell these, these characters stories because in a lot of ways, they weren't characters that I'd necessarily seen in a lot of fantasy. Um, there's a lot of darker thoughts. There's a lot of, well, what if the heroes aren't really necessarily good guys? Um, what if the people who are saving the world no longer have a place in the world once they've saved it? And as someone who hasn't always felt like they have a place in a lot of mainstream society, that was something I really wanted to explore more. Um, I think that was much more subconscious when, when I was younger. And then once I really took the project seriously, I wanted to do that with more intent. Mm. No, fantastic. Um, one question that pops into my head that is just completely, it's not, not something that I scripted, only popped up now that I've, I've like seen you on the video feed. What is that bone behind you? Which one? This, the big, the this big curved one. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this will be audio. So people won't be able to see it, but it's kind of, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe if you say what it is like, <laughs> we'll know what it is, but. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a cow, part of a cow's pelvis. Um, this right here is ah. where the head of the femur would go. And I found that on a on a job site. Its skull is actually out of frame above me. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I write horror, so I love seeing like bones oh, yeah. and stuff. And I, I mean, I also have a, a human skull back there too. But <laughs> nice. Hopefully, yeah, we, not one of your enemies. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a medical specimen, thankfully. Nice. Um, yeah. Coming back into writing. So, <laughs> uh, so we <laughs> mentioned. Okay. 
background. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so, it's so good. Um, we mentioned in the intro, obviously, uh, you've written fantasy and you've written sort of science fiction. Um, what, how, how do you approach genre hopping? Because uh, as someone who has genre hopped, I know that it can be quite difficult to balance. And I know that personally for me, it slowed my progress in certain areas where I could have potentially stuck with one thing and then moved a bit quicker. Um, not that I'd change it in any way because I'm happy with what I've done, but how, how do you approach genre hopping? Well, it's interesting that you said that it, it slows you down. I I don't know if it would slow me down because I think with each book, my process changes so wildly that it's sort of hard to compare. Um, I, I mean, some things stay, stay the same, but my process with sci-fi and with fantasy are actually very different, um, partially because th- at least the, right now, the two projects I'm working on are pretty different in pacing and in point of view. So the work that each entails is very different. So that's part of it, but I also have to have, like I said, multiple projects. And so I, I will have a sci-fi going on at the same time as I have a fantasy, though maybe not in the same stage of, of drafting or revisions or whatever. So that's that's definitely helped me, I think, uh, when I get frustrated with one, I can move on to another and, you know, kind of lose myself in, in that and remember, oh, I, I actually can write. <laughs> and they seem to be quite, um, I don't because I've, I've read a lot of fantasy, I've read a lot of sci-fi, but in my head, I'm trying to work out how I would um, approach writing either of them. And for me, I I feel like there'd, there'd be a gap between fantasy in which you can kind of make up pretty much anything that you want to, obviously within the realms of sort of the politics and everything that's sort of believable within the fantasy, fantasy genre. But with sci-fi, it seems that there'd be a lot more um, research, a lot more sort of tactile um, craft in, the, in terms of sort of the, the world that you build in there. When you say that your approaches to writing them are different, how how different are we talking? What are some of the key things that you take from one that you wouldn't bring into the other? Um, with my sci-fi, I write a little bit more chronologically than I usually do. Um, with my fantasy, the scope of the outline and where, like how how I write the scenes, um, is is much broader because I have you know like ten point of view characters versus my science fiction series is just one point of view character so there's definitely that and like you said there there is a lot more research with the science fiction but it's a little bit easier because a lot of the science is is more modern and so there are a lot more articles on it for for me to study Um, but also that that particular character is an archaeologist so (laughs) I don't don't need to research um though though there's probably some some names that I've changed because I didn't want you know (laughs) um so yeah my my process is is pretty different but I think you know at at the core it's still uh, a vague outline and then I'll I'll go into into more detail and then the outline will change five times throughout the throughout Mm. the process as it does with everyone um how do you (laughs) how do you fit in the writing around your your what sounds like a very busy schedule um well so our particular type of archaeology is seasonal, so I do have kind of a downtime in the winter where I can focus on a little bit more of my my writing side of things. But I also I, I try to write pretty pretty regularly. Um, I'm getting better about not doing it every day because that's not quite sustainable for me right now. Um, but I, I try and write either in the morning or you know before dinner once we've come out of the field, and um, and that's that, that's pretty good. It's kind of nice actually when I do have sort of a set schedule because it's easier to stick to that set schedule. Um, whereas like right now during during quarantine, it's <laughs> kind of a free for all. <laughs> my mm. my writing schedule has changed drastically, not necessarily for the better. But is there still um, currently work at the minute for 
contract archaeologist during the pandemic or is that one of the things that's sort of gone a bit on on hold kind of both um there's definitely still work um but at least in new england because all the states are so small some of them have shut their borders and the company that that we were working for couldn't actually go work in the state where the project was so there's there's definitely work out there it's just sort of when and, and where and um like i said with the hotels a lot of the companies were having some issues trying to figure out how to do that safely. Um, mm. Our RVs were actually one of the solutions. I'm like, tiny house, tiny house. <laughs> <laughs> please, please. <laughs> nice. I, saw, I, I need to find, I don't think tiny houses really, well, I was going to say they're not a thing in England. I know a friend who's getting one built currently, but they're, they're definitely not hit the sort of the mainstream here. It seems to be um, at the minute quite a, an American thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, part of that is, is definitely the housing crisis in the United States. I mean, of course, I don't necessarily know what it's like in, in England, but that's definitely one of the huge drives. And there's also like the gentrification of the tiny house movement thing, which is not great. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I've seen maybe some army trucks that were repurposed in the UK, which uh, were, were kind of cool looking. Um, Interesting. They were in the UK. So. <laughs> Something to look into. I'll be in the market for a new house soon. So, uh, <laughs> um, one thing we we didn't put in the intro um, is that uh, you do a lot of work with, or you you run Amphibian Press. Um, tell us a little bit about what Amphibian Press is and how that came to be and what it's trying to achieve. Well, it's, it started out as a way, just sort of business side of things, as a way to have an umbrella for my publishing and um, one of my my friends my former business partner she and I were working together to make publishing a little bit more accessible and a little bit more um, less less gatekeepy I guess and um, now it's actually sort of morphed a bit more into a cooperative model uh, which I feel like is hoping to kind of focus on on the transparency and just the community because that's really the best part about publishing is being able to have this community and this, this support without some of the weird um you know smoke and mirrors that a lot of mainstream publishing has if you're looking for the next best thing to invest in try investing in your long-term health with forward forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that... um... We, we, we hear from a lot on, on the show is people who like one of the things I definitely try and bring to people with this podcast is a certain transparency, a certain looking behind the curtain at what, what an author's life really is. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of, not even just within traditional publishing houses themselves, but within authors who think they have to create this persona of what it is for them to be an author and, and hide everything in the background, like the worries, right. the stresses, the, you know, the rejections, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I definitely think it's good to bring that to light. What are some of the the things that you you do within the company itself to um, communicate that transparency? And I'll tell you, the reason I'm asking is uh, you can't see it, it's just out of frame, but I've recently uh, launched my own horror uh, publishing imprint. So uh, one thing I want to do with that is really sort of give a voice to people who are otherwise unheard of within that community. Um, I definitely want it to be, like like you say, it's, it's something where you build the community, you really sort of um, 
just lift people up and for it to be transparent about what goes on behind the scenes. So how, how do you feel that you're doing that with, with Amphibian? I mean, a huge chunk of it really. And I think this is what needs to be the most transparent is of course money. Um, Mm. You know, a lot of people have this romanticized idea about what it's like to be an author or how much money you need to invest or frankly, how, how little money you need to invest because that's, that's not the case. It's, you know, it's definitely a labor of love. So I, I really try and be transparent about that um, as far as what, what works and what doesn't and just how we really have to keep trying different methods. Um, and also a, a lot of the methods are, are a little outdated and were built for a market that was growing, whereas now it's a, it's a mature market as far as eBooks and um, independent publishing go. And that's, that's really what my focus is, but also I, I'm definitely focused on more marginalized voices and boosting those voices because that's what publishing doesn't do, um, mainstream publishing doesn't do. And though, you know, there are definitely imprints that are, that are working towards that, I think that is one of the key things because without diverse stories, you know, we, we don't have our, our accurate history and that sort of you know, goes back to the, the archaeology history, so. Yeah. What do you think is the, uh, the secret to raising the voices of the marginalized communities because as we said in the intro you obviously advocate for queer and disabled representation is that um is that you or is does amphibian sort of extend beyond that as well um i mean that's that's definitely me but um amphibian does extend beyond that um our our platform isn't isn't huge by any means um but i do try and use it to pass the mic um, because that's something that that really needs to be done with privilege um and i think it's something that you know, it's, it's hard to just step back and be like, oh, well, I'll let this person speak when you know that they're being actively silenced. Um, so when you're, you're able to pass the mic to them and say, you know, he, here's this platform I built that people are already listening to, why don't you use it? And maybe, you know, hopefully they'll start listening to you as well. Mm. And it's, it's a very bold venture to not only as a solo person go into these avenues of obviously, um, increasing the representation in these sort of areas, but then to pretty much raise a platform and hold up these other writers as well. What is it about you or your past or where you're looking to go that um, gave you that, that push to build this kind of platform? Because uh, I can imagine there are a lot of people that want to do things similar, but they don't feel like they've got necessarily the followers or the resources or um, sort of the knowledge behind them. What is it that, that gave you that oomph to go, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm building this? A lot of what I've learned, I've, you know, I've, I've had to teach myself, but I, I was only able to teach myself those things through other people's hard work. And so part of it is a huge way to just sort of pay it forward and, and repay the people who, you know, taught me everything I know about, about publishing. Because um, a lot of them were, were indie authors, you know, th- themselves 10 years before I was doing it. So that's, that's a huge part of it. But it's also that sense of community, you know, my, my work as an archaeologist, I see the impact that humans can have on one another and how we really can't make it through anything without each other. Uh, and that's not just like some pretty flowery language. I mean, seriously, we can't. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, no, no one person can, can do everything. And that's something that I really like to focus on. And that was part of my transition to making it more cooperative was, you know, well, here are my strengths and here are definitely my, some of my weaknesses. So let's, you know, see what your strengths and weaknesses are. And then, you know, let's, let's get a whole group together and, and we can make everything much better that way. 
Yeah. And just for clarification, so cooperative, you're talking um, rather than essentially being a publisher, you're being a collective that are all working together to to amplify those voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, using the the Amphibian Press umbrella as, you know, an added sense of, you know, I, I'm, I'm vouching for this person or, and, or, or they're vouching for me. And, you know, we, we definitely have a screening process and so forth. So it's not just just anyone who, who can jump in. Um, yeah. But I, I found that that really takes some of the pressure off. And, you know, it's also a really great way to have the support, like the, the actual mental and emotional support as well, not just the, the financial or the, the workload. Mm. Coming back slightly to uh, marginalized voices, what are some of the things that you see in other people's fiction um, that are potentially misrepresenting the queer and disabled? <laughs> You're ready for this question, Yeah, what are some of the, the common mistakes that people people get wrong when trying to write queer or disabled characters? I mean, there there are many things, um, but <laughs> I think one of the the main things is either distilling that person down to only that aspect of their identity or thinking that all people who fall within that identity are the same and have had the same experiences. That's, that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, a, a lot of villains are either queer coded or outwardly, obviously disabled. And that's something that like, I just, I'm so tired of seeing. Um, so that, that those are sort of my, my main nitpicky things. Um, but I think, something I'd like to see more of, sort of put a, a positive spin. Um, I would like to see stories where people of those identities are just sort of going through their lives. Like it's, it's, an, it's an aspect of their identity, but it's not everything about who they are. And the story itself isn't about it. Um, I think that's one of the other things that I'd rather not see is people telling a story about being queer or about being disabled when they themselves are not because that can get into some some iffy areas so yeah speaking from a personal experience i do i do find that because i've you know i've written a number of books behind me and thinking about it i've probably only ever had one homosexual character in any of my books and Mm -hmm. speaking for myself i know that there's um there's almost a fear in me of trying to write these kind of characters or including them in any way just through the possibility that I might get them wrong and end up upsetting people so what would you say to people who are potentially in a similar position to me who you know want to feature more of these kind of characters play with it a little bit more because you know fiction is um a lot of fiction is you putting yourself into other people's positions who you might not necessarily have another chance to be so what would you say to people? I know one of the things you said is obviously don't treat it as almost like a highlighted feature, but just make it, you know, just a bit of background about the character. Like they're still, they're still people. So what are some of the key things that you'd say to, to someone like myself that struggles with that? I, w- I mean, first of all, definitely try. Um, I know that there is a big push for own voices fiction. Um, and, and I did just, you know, say, don't, don't write about an experience if you haven't had it. But, you know, there's also a weird policing there of, well, who's, who's allowed to write? what stories and I think as far as these specific identities go definitely try and I think you know reading fiction written by people who share those identities you know and seeing the characters that that they create but also realizing that they're just like any other character you know you that you might choose to write Um, it is just a piece of their identity 
not saying that you can just, you know, swap one thing out, you know, swap some pronouns out and everything's fine because that's usually not. <laughs> but also, um, you know, get feedback from, from other people. Hire a sensitivity reader if it's a professional project that you're working on. Or maybe share it with someone that you trust to be like, can you tell me if I'm being a, a jack wagon here? <laughs> um, Learning a lot of words from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, sensitivity readers are fantastic. I've, I've hired them for um, my projects that include disabilities that, that I don't have, um, like, like being deaf. And it is invaluable that just the, the little tiny things that you wouldn't even think of, you know, because you can imagine some of the big things, but the tiny things are really where you can slip up. Hmm. Do you think sensitivity readers, because it, it didn't used to be as big a thing back, you know, five, 10 years ago, having sort of sensitivity readers able to look at your work and do this. Do you think um, we're reaching a point where sensitivity readers are almost going to have to be a step within the editing process itself um, just because of how, I guess, um, how wide voices can be reached. And obviously with the climate as it is with social media and everything else, is that something that is going to you know, work itself into just the, the process of writing? I hope so. Mm. Um, I know that that does put a financial strain on newer authors and marginalized authors. However, I think, you know, if you can find a sensitivity reader who's also a content editor, you know, you can, you can have, multiple things taken care of there and also you know you, you don't need to hire a sensitivity reader for the the side character who you know <laughs> makes your your main character's frappuccino or whatever but anyone who really impacts the plot or who is a point of view character i think definitely you you should and i have seen um larger publishing houses you know dipping their toes into the sensitivity reading waters um, i've also seen multiple examples where they clearly didn't um, but i think also just if you have the ability to have a big team behind your book, making sure that everyone who's involved, you know, comes from various different backgrounds, because as long as you have people like that involved and they know that their voices will be listened to, if they're like, eh, you, this is not, this is not it, buddy. You know, then you can really, you can really make your project shine in a way that, you know, isn't harmful. Mm. Must really be like a uh, fingers on a chalkboard to, to read work where you're just like, Oh, they just do not get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes sometimes you can tell it's just being clumsy and sometimes yeah. you can tell oh my god <laughs> yeah um do you have any particular books that you'd recommend to people who might be interested in writing these kind of um characters obviously your own books um to, to start with but do you have any that um you think are worth people checking out reading and just and just seeing what it's all about oh for sure i mean if if you're a cyberpunk fan um oe Tierman writes the aces high jokers wild series and um that is such an incredible series i mean it's, it's it's cyberpunk but there's you know queer characters there's disabled characters there's so many different cultures um and they're all this wonderful found family and you know some of them are, are a little clumsy with the way they they interact with each other but for the most part it's a really great show and you know showing of how to do it right um, definitely, definitely their work. The fourth book is out and I think there's going to be a total of seven. So that's nice. exciting. Cool. I'll put um, a link to that in the show notes. Um, we spoke a little bit about, obviously, um, you're talking about uh, co 
I'm trying to think what the word was, cooperative um, working with, with Amphibian Press. Um, and one thing I came across was your Star's Edge series um, is a shared universe with uh, Cameron J. Quinn. Talk to me a little bit about how, how that works in terms of sharing a universe while trying to write your own books within that, that world. Uh, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> um, so luckily we're, we're both very driven writers. I mean, she, she's a much faster writer than I am. Um, but our approach to writing is, is pretty similar and our sort of attention to detail with craft is similar. So that's been really helpful that we're kind of on, on the same page there. But it, it was kind of an accident. Uh, it started out with her Starsboro series. You know, I, I thought, oh, like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if, you know, your, your character, Tabby, was my main character, Nell's ex, because Nell has a zillion exes. And a zillion exes. <laughs> so, you know, I, I thought that'd be kind of funny. Like, oh, let's just put a little cameo for people who happen to read both. And it just sort of went from there. And now we have like this, this whole timeline, which is in a Google Doc. So whenever one of us gets a new story idea, we'll have a, a video chat nowadays, but um, we'll sit down and have a conversation about like, well, where, where will this fit in? And well, if, if your characters blow up that thing, then my characters will have to visit it at you know, this time period. <laughs> you know, it's a whole complicated thing, but it's, you know, there's no, we, we haven't yet written well, a single work together. Um, which I think makes it a little bit easier. And our genres, while they heavily overlap, they're not entirely the same, which also makes it a little bit easier for some of that wiggle room to be there. Hmm. That's a very interesting way to to approach it. Um, because what, what I've seen a lot is people who do either one person has led and built the universe and then other people sort of jump in. Um, and I, I guess like you say, that's a little bit of what happened here. Um, or people who jump in and write the books together and then split off and start bringing different people in. So right. how, how did that conversation come across and how, how do you approach building each work and trying to fit in? I know you mentioned, obviously you've got the timelines, you've got sort of a bit of the background. Um, but is there an element of needing the styles to be relatively consistent or are you saying, you know, the world is this particular world and we just write our stories within it as we would write any of our other stories? Mostly the latter. Um, when it comes to sharing characters, so in the example of, of Tabby, in the second book of my Nell Bentley series, uh, Nell sort of ends up back on Tabby's stoop in sort of a like, hey, it's life or death. That's the only reason why I hear I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is how it's going to be. And so when I wrote that, while I wrote the scene, you know, I had read Cameron's character Tabby multiple times in in the few uh, times that she showed up in the Starsboro Chronicles. So I sort of had an idea for Tabby's character, but then afterwards I sent that scene to Cameron and said, like, can you read through it? She, she made a few edits as far as like the, the way Tabby spoke and like, well, she might not do that, but she could probably do this, which would still work in the scene. And um, that was really the, the closest we've come to more like co-writing. Um, but for the most part, her books take place sort of b both before and then after um, the, the Nell Bentley series. So as long as, you know, like I said, cer certain things are blown up when they're supposed to be and, you know, no one's visiting areas that, that are off limits or, or whatnot or have zombies in them <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when they wouldn't, um, it's, it's pretty fine. Hmm. Marketing-wise, how do you cross-pollinate the two? Do you push people to the other series? How do you, how do you sort of advertise both if you do? Um, 
yeah, yeah, we we definitely do some some cross promotion. You know, whenever one of her books is is being released, I'll mention it to my newsletter and, and vice versa. Um, but she she is my my former business partner with Amphibian, so for a while it wasn't really necessary because we were under the same umbrella. Um, mm. But now she's she's sort of taken a different direction with her with her work, and so we you know we'll do shout outs. We'll both um, you know share things on on social media. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's any more than we would normally because you know we've, we've been long time writing partners mm. i want to ask a question that feel free not to answer because i know that um sometimes it can be you know behind closed doors and all that kind of stuff but i know you mentioned there that obviously you guys started amphibian press relatively together and then you've gone your separate ways in managing the conversation of going in those separate directions how did you how did you work that between each other was it something amicable because um, again, I know that's something that can be sort of heightened with emotion. Um, sometimes it can be quite difficult to come out of that situation when you both built something um, mm-hmm. with just like an air of grace around you. So uh, are, you, are you happy to answer that question about you know, how, how you yes. managed to talk it through? <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, transparency, right? Yeah. So um, <laughs> we started out as best friends. And then I happened to mention to her that I was working on this thing called Smoke and Rain. Is that her skull? Like, oh, wait 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 no no it's not (laughs) Um, no but uh i you know i i happened to mention to her that that i had this project and then she was like oh well i'm also working on this thing and so we were friends first and we are still friends um and you know we're we're like long long time friends but it was very emotional um, when we chose to go our separate ways, but that was honestly because we hadn't been communicating, communicating um, some of the issues that, that we were having. So it sort of came to a, a boiling point. And finally, both of us sat down and I said, what if you did your own thing and we just did each other favors when we needed the, the extra help and I did my own thing? And both of us were just so relieved when we said, you know, it was like a at a coffee shop, a local coffee shop back when, back when we could do that. (laughs) (laughs) The good old taste. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was, it was incredibly nerve wracking, but honestly, I think if we had just like talked to each other, it would have been much, much easier, Mm. Um, but we still, we still are great friends. And, um, I think we're both really, really happy with the separate directions that our careers have gone. Um, and we still, we still help each other out all the time. Yeah, it's something so um, fundamentally important about getting into any kind of partnership together. And I, I wrote a book on on collaborating for, for authors uh, this year. And there's a big section in there about sort of managing those conflicts and making sure that, you know, everything aligns and the, the re- yeah, absolutely. And the realization that it is, it's so much more than just like a peer friendship when you actually get into these things. Like it's, you know, it can, can be compared to sort of romantic relationships because there is that real investment from two people to bring this thing to life and to work on it and, you know, to communicate back and forth. Um, and I, I definitely think that being able to navigate when you have changed your mind or come to a point where you want to split off and do something else and, and being able to come out of that, the other side stronger is something that I've seen quite a lot of people fail at. Um, right. But obviously yeah. from, from the sounds of it, you guys obviously manage it well and that's a testament to your friendship. Definitely. I mean, I think part of it was both of us realized it's either we go our, our, our separate ways, you know, professionally, or we go our separate ways permanently. Mm. And that that wasn't a sacrifice either of us were willing to make. 
yeah i'll uh switch gears a little bit and get a little bit less emotional um <laughs> i've i've seen on your website that you uh, as well as obviously having your, your list of books and you know links to amazon and everywhere that they're sold um you do a a bit of direct selling as well and as someone who is um nowhere yet in the direct selling game i just wondered uh if you had any advice or what, what your kind of approach is when it comes to direct selling and also um, how effective you find it as well. Well, I'm the, the store is maybe a month old. Um, yeah. at the time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, definitely I'm, I'm still, I've, I've got my training wheels on. Mm. Um, it's something that because I write marginalized voices, I want my my work to be available to as many people and as, as you know accessible as possible to as as many people as possible. So that, that was definitely part of why I wanted to do direct selling because it's just one more option, um, especially with a lot of the issues people ju- justified issues people have with companies like Amazon. You know, I I wanted to give people an alternative that was still very um, easy to find. You know, because a lot of the the smaller, especially ebook sites, you know, it's you kind of have to go through a whole rigmarole to to get what you're looking for. So that was definitely part of it. I think really the key for me has been not focusing purely on one avenue, whether that's KDP or um, Amazon um, <laughs> or you know Draft Digital or any of those those other sites. I find sort of spreading things as, as widely as possible has been the most effective for me. Um, I know other genres, it's it's really different. So that's really been, been the main thing. But also as far as success goes, you know, a lot of people, especially fellow creators, really want to, you know, they're while they might not have a lot of money to, to spend on your work, they want it to go the furthest. And so if you say like, oh, but if you buy directly from me, you know, it, it really helps me out that much more. Um, you know, they, they get to have a little ego boost uh, when, mm. when they buy. And that's, that, I think that's helpful. Yeah. How do you, or how are you handling stock at the minute? Is it a case of everything you've listed, you've had to bring in sort of physical stock yourself? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it is is through you know print on demand. Um, luckily, I did have a um, a small stock here uh, because my local bookstore wasn't able to get any of the um, the books from Ingram because of the the pandemic. So that's been a a big issue. Um, but normally, I, I do have a small stock, and then you know I just sort of build in time with with the shipping time when I need to. Fantastic. So spreading spreading your product as wide as possible are we talking about your um typical sort of conversation which is uh, you know all in with amazon versus wide are you sort of just with you know draft digital smash words or, or do you have sort of other avenues as well that maybe are a little less known of that you might be able to share i mean definitely draft digital and, and all of their listed um companies that, that they distribute to also libraries and local bookstores um, you know, there, there are a couple different sites that distribute to specifically indie bookstores um, that some bookstores use instead of Ingram as, as their stockist, which I think is really important. Um, but also in the medium, which your book is done. So not just ebook or paperback or hardcover, but also, of course, audiobook. Um, that's That's been a huge thing, though. I myself am not an audiobook listener. I, I would love for more people to be able to listen to my book um, as, as well, especially with the, you know, disability rights, you know, it's great for someone who might not be able to read physical books, you know, to be able to listen to them. 
Absolutely. Um, going a little bit into pen names because I and by all, by all means, again, tell me to push away if I'm if I've got this wrong. Um, but I saw that you have a another pen name under some romance books, yes. and is that still a thing that you're you're currently working on that you're you're chipping away with as well as the other books? Yeah, that's that's back burner. Um, it's it's definitely something I would like to do. It's sort of my when I need to really reset my brain um, because you know a lot of my sci-fi and fantasy it's really really dark. Um, mm. Of course, like one of my romances, there's like character death, so I, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know the the plots themselves aren't necessarily dark, and I like to be able to have that palate cleanser. Um, I think it's also really important to see, you know, queer and disabled people just living life happily and having relationships and having friendships where it's not about coming out or anything like that or about, you know, their, their pain or, you know, in the case of some tragic romance movies that are more popular these days, you know, where it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just the, the lesson for you who's an able-bodied person to, to learn how to like actually enjoy life. You know, I've, I've had it with that too. So it's, yeah. that's definitely sort of something I'm focusing on. It's not, um, it's not my main focus. I don't think romance will ever be my main focus as an author, but it's something I definitely, you know, I have several um, small work in, in works in progress that I'm going to throw out there when they're eventually done. <laughs> And I think I know the answer to this, but is there a reason that you chose uh, VS Holmes for your fantasy and sci-fi and then a different pen name? Um, I don't know if you want to announce a pen name or not, so I'll just, I'll just not at this point. Um, but a different name for romance. Was there a reason that you, you went for the different ones with different genres? Um, it was really marketing. Um, so Victoria Spencer is my romance pen name. Um, you can obviously see the, the VS Victoria Spencer. Mm-hmm. So I wanted some connection there, but I wanted something that was easy to spell and easy to remember and as far as the romance goes, I wanted it to have a little bit of romance in it. Um, so that, that was my, my choice there. But then with VS, um, initials sell more books in sci-fi fantasy because of sexism. Um, so that was part of it. <laughs> and uh, also, you know, I was looking at thing, you know, names that are easy to remember, easy to spell. And as far as Holmes goes, um, you know, it's in the middle of the alphabet. It's in the middle of the shelf right in front of you. Mm. So it's a is lot that, of a lot of planning. <laughs> yeah. Is that a fact that it's initial sell better in those genres? Um, if you are a femme presenting person, you will sell more books yeah. if you have initials than if your name is, you know, Tom or <laughs> George. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking most of the fantasy that I read, um, to be fair, I'm mostly just J.R.R. Tolkien, so that's all. Right. <laughs> that, 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 that's where my heart lays. I, I think that's actually a factor, too, is, you know, a lot of the big names, George mm. R. R. Martin, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, th- there are initials in there. Um, and we, I think that's sort of a comforting thing when it's familiar, maybe. Mm. If I ever go into fantasy, which at some point I might, because I originally started in fantasy until I realized mm. that I was too premature of a writer to be able to do to do any of that um i'm probably gonna have an rr in there somewhere just to, okay. <laughs> just to join the leagues of my idols oh my gosh yeah yes um we are coming uh, close to time so i've got one more main question before i go into a quick fire round um and it's a question that i ask all of my guests and that is vs holmes why do you write i write because i want people to be able to see themselves in books and see what they are capable of, um, which sounds like an awful lot of hubris, but it took a very long time for me to see myself in books. And it 
changed my world and I would like to change someone's world. I love it. I'll just end the interview there. (laughs) (laughs) But no, we've got a bit of silliness coming up. So I've got a a quick fire round now, which is 10 questions. I'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible. Um, (laughs) Some of them are uh, multiple choice. Other ones just... It's all, it's literally all for fun. So uh, feel free to pass at any point. Um, but are you ready? I, I guess so. Yes. <laughs> the, the first one I think is going to be quite difficult. Um, <laughs> science fiction or fantasy? Reading or writing? I shouldn't be asking questions. Um, Either fantasy. or. <laughs> okay. Yes. You have an entire cinema to yourself. What film do you watch? Interstellar. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Uh, chocolate with all of the random flavored bits in it. what are you currently reading i'm currently reading a single light by tosca lee oh fantastic uh what time do you wake up on a typical day uh crack it on what's the most expensive thing you've ever asked santa for santa for uh, probably a pony i didn't get one nice uh who's your favorite fictional character of all time oh that is impossible Uh, (laughs) ellie arroway you get given $10,000 for a vacation. Where do you go and what do you do? Oh, well, we can't go anywhere now. Um, I would, <laughs> Pretend all that crap hasn't happened. <laughs> I would probably go to Mongolia. Nice. Uh, Laura? I would, oh, I, just, I would just go say archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Lara Croft or Indiana Jones? Uh, Lara Croft. What's your favorite song to get amped up to? anything instrumental i love hidden citizens nice and that's 10 questions one extra question is where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you're working on uh they can check me out at vsholmes.com and i'm on twitter instagram and facebook beautiful and i'll put links to all of your places in the show notes um but yeah v thank you so much for spending this time with me it's been a genuine pleasure having a, a chance to talk yeah thank you so much for having me this was great no worries and thank you everyone for listening and i will see you next week Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, we've got a special Halloween episode for you as myself and John Crinan join forces with the hosts of This Is Horror, Michael David Wilson and Bob Pastorella and present to you Great Writers Scare. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writers Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare. Until next time.